He was the most frightening person I have ever met. And bear in mind, I was once stuck in a lift with Mad Frankie Fraser for three hours. And there was a man who didn't like confined spaces, I can tell you. I've never seen rage in anyone like I saw in him. Now he had evil inside of him. Absolute, pure evil. If he liked you, that was a blessed relief. See, now I'd seen him try and rip someone's ear off just for daring to comment about his call I once saw him kick a lawyer in the throat and then attempt to skin him alive with a letter opener. It's still haunts me to this day. He had the most impeccable table manners of any inmate in Pentonville. It was a joy to watch him eat lunch. He's the most unique criminal I've ever come into contact with in all my years as a barrister and a judge on the Queen's bench. Such a strange boy. He was haunted uh, almost. Oh, he put the willies right up me. And I placed my thumbs over each other's eyes. And I slowly began to squeeze. And I carried on squeezing harder and deeper, harder, feeling his eyeballs consciously burst in tandem. Sickly liquid oozing down my fists, resembling raspberry panacotta. My name is Magnus Finch. I'm a writer, a journalist and broadcaster. For as long as I can remember, I've been consumed with a desire to unearth original and compelling stories. Over the past few decades, I've highlighted corruption at the highest level of politics, injustices in the legal system, corporate irresponsibilities at boardroom level and international animal rights abuses. But nothing can beat the thrill you get unearthing a story about a character that is so engrossing and utterly unique, unlike anyone else that you've come across before. That sort of story and character comes along once on a blue moon, if you're lucky. A couple of years ago, thanks to a work colleague who was emigrating, I received some old boxes, uh, one of which contains a series of forthright interviews with an extraordinary character. He was called Queenie. How had such a notorious and unique character remained so completely under the radar? He was last sighted at a bare-knuckle boxing fight in Gravesend, Kent in 2010, following his last known prison term in Belmarsh, a Category A jail, where he was incarcerated for five years. There have been no recorded sightings since this incident, though with no official death certificate or any other recent sightings. The question of where is Queenie now still hangs in the air. And for his first prison sentence, Queenie served nearly six years in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. Let's remember, the judge ordered him to serve just over two years for his crime of embezzlement. He admitted readily to the stealing of £3 million from the private bank that he was working for at the time in 1985. But his motive seemed honourable. To help his abandoned mother in her time of need and also remember that family home, that stately pile in Lincolnshire, which, thanks to years of neglect, was crumbling and in dire need of funds to keep it vaguely habitable. So, Queenie arrived at Parkhurst Prison, a progressive Category B jail, a young man 
who has never previously been in trouble with the law, but leaves, having his sentence extended by almost three times due to a string of violent offences whilst inside. Episode 4. Going Straight. doubt that whilst behind bars, Queenie reinvents himself. He elects to become a notorious figure, constantly sticking his made-up face above the parapet and often throwing enemies off the battlements to do so. This is a man that wants to be remembered. And former Governor Leslie Cameron is one of those people who remembers him well. I saw so very many prisoners come and go in my tenure as governor of that facility. You get to know many for a variety of reasons. Queenie is definitely one of the very most memorable. His former cellmate, Belcher, also talks about his unpredictability. I definitely had some in. Scared the shit out of me, I can tell you, but whilst in his presence you felt special. Special. He had this sort of posh way with him. I'm making you feel that you met it to him. How I think hanging out with Stephen Fry would be, but, you know, with Stephen, you wouldn't be scared you'd suddenly get a finger in your windpipe with no notice. People have said you knew if he was going to attack you. Rubbish. It could change mid-sentence. Uh, that one second he'd be liking you. The next, thinking to basically done a shit on his mum's picture. No warning. Changed. Uh, in a heartbeat. And you shared a cell with him? I did. Yeah, for about three months. We got on. Famously, as it happens, I think um, I was the last one to cohabit with him. Uh, but whilst we was sharing the cell... Uh, he went for Clive the screw now. Clive, he was a wrong and proper, nasty, sadist, and everyone knew it. Kind of character that was bullied at school and becomes a prison guard and basically takes it out on everyone. He was a prick. Spineless prick. Ain't nothing worse than a prick with no spine. Queenie. Got him alone in the TV room. Uh, the Antiques Roadshow was on at the time because the music was playing whilst he did him in. Oh, I can remember the sound of his high-pitched screams. It's uh, sort of blended in with the high trumpet of the theme tune. Wow. Even the other screws didn't like Clive. Uh, Normally that would have been a few weeks in... Choky and God knows what added to your sentence, but because it was Clive, it was all sort of hushed up, brushed under the carpet, and that was his last attack before he was let out of Parkhurst. Here's Nigel Puse, psychologist. Once Queenie leaves Parkhurst prison, he's a changed man, answerable to no one but himself. Now overnight... 
He doesn't have the shackles of any sort of self-restraint or control over his temper any longer. Now, he's constantly lashing out at anyone that he considers displeasing to him. And according to medical reports, he's not schizophrenic, he isn't delusional, he isn't suffering from hearing voices or seeing visions, and we know that he wasn't on any sort of medication or antidepressants. In fact, he became quite upset and would write letters about the fact that prison doctors all seemed hell-bent on trying to get him to agree to take one drug after another. If he created the mythical character of Queenie during his first term at Parkhurst, then he's going to want to maintain that in the outside world for sure. Now, it took work and a certain tenacity to gain a fearsome reputation in a large prison, which houses some pretty dark characters serving time for some very heinous, violent crimes. Now, once he was out, he wouldn't want that hard work to vanish. He had a reputation to maintain. Queenie was met at the gates of Parkhurst by a character called Jamiroquai. No, not the supercar-driving, funk-singing bellend from West London. This Jamiroquai was so-called because of his collection of ridiculous hats, something Queenie himself wasn't averse to wearing. Jamiroquai drove him straight to London, where he was living in a small flat in Pimlico. Let's hear Queenie now picking up the story. Young Jamiroquai... He was the first genuine gentleman that helped me on the outside. He took me in for a few weeks into his basement flat in Pimlico. He cooked for me, played music for me. He allowed me the space to readjust to life in Siri Street. He was a constant in my life for a great, great many years. Now, Queenie knew his accommodation with Jamiroquai was temporary. He needed to find something more permanent. Now, during his first year after Parkhurst, he spent brief spells in different houses. As an ex-con, he certainly couldn't get a mortgage. He wasn't gainfully employed, so he couldn't go through agencies to rent his own flat, let alone own one in his own right. If he wanted to stay in London, and it appeared that he did, then shared accommodation in the suburbs was the only short-term solution. Here he is talking about one such living arrangement. The vicissitudes of my post-Parkhurst situation forced me into some wholly unsatisfactory living arrangements. I can remember one. A Barrett starter home in Zone 5. The shame, the ignominy. Alas, it was all I could afford. And yet, I was forced to share the facilities with a man from the Sudan suffering from IBS and a couple from The Hague with a predilection for threesomes with gentlemen they picked up in the park. It did not last long. There was an altercation with Zahid, and I was asked to leave forthwith. Thankfully, my probation officer was well connected with Lambeth Council, and I was rehomed very swiftly. 
One such house was in East London. Now, I managed to track down one of the former housemates, a Hungarian by the name of Lajos Frankel, still living in the same area to this day. I was living with a friend in Brixton. It was getting married, so I needed to find a new place to live. Another acquaintance who I was working with at Nandos said there was a vacancy in a house near Hecknivik, Homerton, but it was a good house. The share of the bills, and you can move in immediately. So I gave deposit, and I met four other housemates that evening. It was one English girl, Camilla, very nice, a couple from Holland, also very nice. Then there was a man, I think, from Middle East, quiet and shy, and me. And But there was one other that I did not meet on this first evening. Queenie. Yes, Queenie. So this was a uh, night after my first meeting with the housemates, and I was uh, preparing a snack in the kitchen. It was shared kitchen. Now, I knew the house was empty, but I could feel there was uh, someone behind me, watching me. It was quite dark, but I could see in the window reflection a figure wearing a hat, a big hat. I thought maybe it was a Mexican because the brim of the hat was big. It's a big, big brim. He said to me who he was. He was very quiet and there was um, menace in his voice. He explained to me that he did not like anyone poking around in his cupboard, looking at his food. And had you? Had you been in Queenie's cupboard? I explained I have not been in his cupboard. Why would I go into his cupboard? But he kept walking toward me until I was backed right into the oven. He said that the last housemate that went into his cupboard needed to visit the hospital, and I should be very careful. But I explained to him that I had very specific dietary requirements. I was vegan and I was gluten-free. That, that seemed to make him even more displeased with me. Did you think that he was maybe going to get violent with you? Not violent, but he was very close to me. He was breathing on me and examining me like I was uh, something... I don't know, he found on his shoe with it made him very unhappy. Right, what did you do then? I had to do something quickly to change the mood. I said, would you like a glass of port? Port? I know, I don't even like port, but I remember I had a bottle, it was a present. So I was happy to share it with him, so we sit down. I open the port, I pour him a glass, and he becomes much happier and completely different. And he drinks it all, whilst talking to me about all kinds of things. He was very well read, but it was not relaxing, always the possibility that he could 
go for my face like a cobra. The brevity of tenancy in so many of my living quarters was tiresome and caused me a great deal of irritation. I was living with this constant fog of pressure bearing down on me, and as if that wasn't enough all the while I was being pursued by my then probation officer, a man by the name of Peter Priestley. I did rather like Mr. Priestley. He had patience and understanding, and I think, I think he rather liked me. I spoke to Peter Priestley, former probation officer, now retired and living in Derbyshire, about his dealings with Queenie. Now, I could tell this wasn't going to be an easy relationship. You know, when you've been in the probation game as long as I had, you could certainly spot the tricky ones. And there were some that were going to be happy to tread the path of redemption, and some can be coerced into treading it. And there are others for whom that path is to be ignored, never to be trodden, and avoided at all costs. It, it, it may even be shat on like a feral beast. You know, sort of dump your load and expect somebody else to pick it up. Or worse still, expect others to fall in it and get it all over the clothes. But, now I'm tenacious, and I wasn't going to let him ride roughshod over me. I was determined that I find a way to keep him from reoffending. So did you have a specific plan for this? Well, I thought that if I could appeal to his passions, his loves, that maybe, just maybe, we could find a way to at least begin to navigate through this. So uh, what were those loves? Well, reading his prison reports from various people, his doctor, his governor, and a, you know, a couple of visiting teachers, it seemed that he was at his happiest when he was engaged in some form of drama therapy engrossed in role playing maybe creating a spot of dramatic writing for these classes so he used his imagination a character trait so lacking from long-term offenders who've given up on any sort of flight of fantasy is find that lifers often cannot think beyond the four walls of their cell so queenie took well to this performance-based activity then? Well, it seemed that way. And it was new to him. You see, I understand that he'd not done it at school or university. It certainly seemed he had the aptitude and natural ability to perform in character, to interpret text. And, look, I'm not a psychologist, but it were like he were acting out of character anyways. Queenie sort of came to be inside Parkhurst. And like all the great method actors, it was the role that he intended to immerse himself in all the time. Peter Priestley was right. Queenie did have a passion for performance, which was piqued by a visiting drama teacher, Julius Goodman. Oh, yes. Dear, dear Julius Goodman, the wonderful teacher... He imbued each lesson with us with humanity and a passion that did not exist at Parkhurst. To hear him talk about the bard or Commedia dell'arte was to suddenly glimpse a world far removed from the drab, thick Victorian walls. 
of our cell block. I was hooked in the rapture. I might have needed a little coaxing to begin with, but once I fully entertained my thespian tendencies, it was like opening a door to another world. Uh, do you think that your newfound interest tempered, at least for a while, your lust for violence? No, I do not think so. No. In fact, it was one of the classes where I decided that another participant, Jamaican Johnny, was going to get what for in the D-Wing bogs. And what made you decide that? His performance, dear boy. He was reading Iago with so little understanding or feeling for the text, treating the subtleties of Shakespeare's verse with such derision and disdain that the only answer was to get him in the end cubicle and give him a swift going over, which I did, using a homemade bleed, a sponge and a jar of lighter fuel. I began by holding Johnny down on the floor. The and he's into another chilling my... description of an altogether hideously violent act. So, we know he loved and, by all accounts, was very gifted at acting. It came naturally to him, and he didn't shy away from the spotlight. So, it wasn't a surprise to find out that probation officer Peter Priestley would harness this innate talent and passion for performance in his post-prison probationary rehab. Uh, most probation officers I know wouldn't have known what to do with Queenie. You know, they run a mile. But they did my research. I knew what he liked, what he were, what he were good at. Plus, rather fortuitously, I had a very close relationship with a fellow that ran an ex-offenders drama club, would you believe? RPAC, the Reformed Prisoners Acting Club, was run by an ex-con, Leon Dooley, who had the idea to occupy prisoners' time as they served their parole. His idea was to engage with them, with ambitious productions as a great way of keeping the most vulnerable ex-cons on the straight and narrow. The idea was to keep them focused and interested in something more than just trying to look for work and hope that they could resist not being lured back into a life of crime. I caught up with Leon. Is this on? Lovely. So, but inside a prison, it's easier to run a company of thespians. They're captive. Literally. You know they're not going anywhere. However... It can be pretty irksome if you're working toward a production of um, Henry Four Part One, and you lose your four staff when his parole comes up early due to good behaviour. Conversely, you could lose your leading man when, and this did happen in the case of Queenie, when he was rehearsing for a production of The Tempest, and he was a brilliant Prosper, a best I'd ever seen. And bear in mind, I saw Ian Richardson and Jacoby do it. But when he walked into the library that October morning and smacked Pedlo Pierre's head repeatedly into a metal bookcase, we'd lost him to solitary for three months. Circular Stan tried his best to step into those shoes, but there was literally no comparison. No depth. Queenie really did leave un. Fillable shoes.
Oh, and I suppose you're not really set up with understudies to step into the breach. Exactly. Pretty stumped. Although, what can happen is that, and I, I go on, I give my full staff or my Prospero, which I'm always prepared to do, and I have done on a few occasions to great, great acclaim, I might add. But given the choice, I'd rather not. Right. Having run RPAC very successfully, it should be said, for many years in the outside world, what sort of challenges were you faced with? There are extraneous pressures on your pool of actors. Bear in mind, we hook up with ex-female prisoners on parole too. That can cause all sorts of strange dynamics and frictions. They're all adjusting to life on the outside again, wrestling with their own demons, their own foibles. Possibly a decade inside that can be very, very harsh in any currency. Leon's RPAC is still going strong to this day with several branches around the country. Now, I went to the North London branch and spoke to Nelson, an early graduate of the scheme and someone that found himself in the group with Queenie. Right, I did not think that acting it was something that I could do, let alone wanted to do. But I always thought I feel it was for like proper knob jobs, yeah? And Leon, he come and spoke at Pentonville whilst I was there. Now, I had like only like two months left on my sentence, yeah. I was worried. I was worried about getting out because I was getting, I was getting proper pressure from my crew inside and out. You know, they wanted me back, they needed me, yeah. Bear in mind, I've been in and out for most of my days, but I was, Done with it, I was proper done. But Leon, he come in, he talked a good game. And I liked his style. Yeah, he knew what he was going through, yeah? And he saw something in me that nobody else did. And what was that? Talent, fam. Raw, proper talent. He said he was planning doing a production of like a homecoming by some geezer called Pinter. I told him, I knew nothing about drama or theater. I never heard of this geezer called Pinter, yeah, but I'll give it a go. Anything, yeah, to get me away from my past life. But it wasn't just Leon, yeah, it was Queenie too, yeah. Now bear in mind, I was young, yeah, young at the time, but Queenie, Took a shine to me, took me under his wing. Now I knew who this geezer was. Yeah, he had a proper rip. I could see that he was gonna find it hard in the outside world. He made them like prison, it validated him. Now don't get me wrong, he still commanded respect on the outside, but but the geezer found it vexing. Queenie. He didn't like the real world. Prison was where he had um, validity, where his reputation preceded him. Arpak provided a modicum of rigidity, a, a timetable to adhere to, and he took to that. 
Even when I knew he was active in all sorts of nefarious wrongdoings with other ex-prisoners on the outside, you could, well, you could always rely on him to be there, on time, text learned, ready to rehearse. Was he ever difficult in rehearsals? Yeah. The whole session could be ruined if, say, he'd had a bad morning, or you know, felt that someone who he thought was a banker looked at him a certain way on the tube platform. That would send him into a spiral. You'd get no work done if he was in that sort of headspace. Now, how long was he with our pack for? On and off for a good few years. I know that he went back behind bars in the mid to late 90s. That, well, that was the last I saw of him. Not the last I heard of him. Of course, Chrysler. His reputation was everywhere. And because I was working, and I'm still working with ex-prisoners, well, there would be tales of his exploits on that landing or in that particular cell block. And I'm, I'm loath to apply the term legend. But that's what he was. He was legendary. He was spoken about with, by those in the penal fraternity with a sort of awe and hushed reverence, normally reserved for elder statesmen and politicians. Here's Nigel Puse again. It's interesting that the one constant activity we know about both inside during his first prison term at Parkhurst and also during that first period in Civvy Street is that of drama, of donning a character, pretending to be someone else. So he's already assumed a new identity, or at the very least has assumed a hyper-exaggerated version of his old self, that of Queenie, the violent prisoner, the effete career criminal with a list of loathed targets and a massive helping of chips on both velvet-covered shoulders. Is it possible the drama played to his strengths of character invention and he wanted to do more, to go even deeper? Oh, absolutely. You know, he'd already shown that he had an undeniable talent for it. We know that even early on in his first prison sentence, people were completely fearful of him. The drama classes, the time spent on the outside with Arpac allowed him to push further his study into character and backstory all the time, creating more layers, adding more texture to his almost mythical status. And this was the perfect milieu, rather than, say, carpentry or mechanical engineering. Plus, we shouldn't forget, and he's from a world where the love of drama was deeply ingrained, a highly educated man living in a world where the higher art forms were very, very familiar to him. Queenie's time with Arpac did come to an abrupt end. It won't be an altogether unbelievable surprise to hear that it was another in an exceedingly long line of violent incidents that occurred during a matinee performance of Twelfth Night. I can remember the atmosphere being very jovial. During rehearsals, we were a happy bunch. But once we were to costume with production looming, myself, and I know I wasn't alone in feeling this, could sense a, a, a palpable tension in the air. Of course, we, we knew the source of the tension. I mean, if there was ever a bad atmosphere in the room, it was always due to Queenie. But this, 
this just got worse and worse. And uh, how did it manifest itself? He seemed irritated by the implausibility of the plot line, particularly the cross-dressing Viola. In the play? Indeed. Those that know the play understand that it's a key device and something with which uh, one needs to suspend disbelief somewhat. But in Queenie's case, this dramatic license was completely ignored and literal disbelief set in. He, he wasn't having it. I mean, there was no amount of reasoning that anyone could have done. His mild irritation at the unbelievability of it all escalated to something altogether more palpable. Right, and uh, did this manifest itself during a performance? Our first matinee, which was for an audience that largely consisted of GCSE pupils from a local secondary school. And we got off to a good start, but when Olivia um, professes her love for Cesario, Queenie began to become enraged and making comments about how utterly unbelievable this plot line was, and he was shouting at Olivia to, 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 to look a bit more closely at her intended. You know, look, look, look at her hairy hands and her massive Adam's apple. And it all came to a head in the final scene when Orsino declares his love for the newly revealed Viola. Well, that's when he became physically violent. And he began by punching a couple of the main actors, and, and he was pretty indiscriminate about it. I mean, anyone on stage at this point was fair game. The audience must have been particularly upset at this, considering many of them were children. At first they thought it was some sort of strange, brutalist interpretation of the text, but when Queenie absolutely lost it during that final scene... Christ, I mean, no one, and I mean no one, was safe, and I include the audience in that. Several of them were on the receiving end of slaps, kicks, and one youngster got a very harsh jab to the throat for shouting out loudly, I don't like this, I'm frightened. Nigel Puse. This is a very telling tale of the volatility of Queenie during this time. So he's turned a corner during this first incarceration, attacking Doogie, his cellmate, and others. And after his eventual release, he's understandably finding it harsh in the outside world, the world that no longer looks at him with the sort of fear and awe that perhaps he commanded on his wing in Parkhurst. So he's having to process and live with the, the passing of his mother and all the time he's been forced to cohabit with people he doesn't know, that he doesn't have anything in common with, and in many cases does not like. So put all of that into the mix, and the RPAC 12th Night incident isn't really that surprising to me. Yeah, but it is unusual, and that this is one of the only incidents we know of where he lashes out at people indiscriminately. You know, these are people with whom he had no beef whatsoever, including children. Like I said, this is a very raw time in his life. He's processing so, so much. And, you know, I think it's very telling that this incident seems to be a one-off insofar as the victims, including children, were indiscriminately chosen. It's an anomaly, a blip 
in a never-ending pursuit of only hurting those that have directly offended him or those that were part of the legal or financial institution. Join me, Magnus Finch, next time on Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal, as things take a very strange turn in the personal relationship department. Violent Criminal was written, produced by Steve First, with voices and music by Steve First, additional voices by Debbie Chasen.